We're going to read the Lord's Prayer uh, together, really as a prayer, and then I'm going to focus this morning on the last verse. Um, Let me read these first four words, and then we'll pray the whole prayer together out loud. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or as many translations say, from the evil one. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we want to humble ourselves. We can't assume that you're going to help us, because any help we receive is from the Holy Spirit of God. So we ask you now that the Holy Spirit would come and make dead hearts alive, and that you'd make cool hearts warm, and that you would make warm hearts hot with love for you. Pray this in Jesus' name, and pray you do it in our weakness through your strength. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have just two points this morning, and the second one is about God's deliverance, and we'll get to that in a few moments. But the first one is about our humility. I want to think with you as we think about this last verse in the prayer that Jesus gave us to pray, not routinely or or, uh, mindlessly, but meaningfully and simply. As we think about this last verse, I want to think about what it teaches us about the kind of humility that the Lord Jesus Christ wants to cultivate in our souls. And I want to begin by thinking about our humility by reminding you of an incident in the life of Jesus that happened just a short time before this prayer was first taught. Just a short time before the Sermon on the Mount was given, you might remember there was a very significant event in the life of Jesus. And it was a time when he was taken by the Spirit of God into the wilderness while fasting to be tempted not by a demon but by the devil himself. And that situation is described in Matthew chapter 4, 1. And I want you to listen and hear exactly how this situation is described for us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led by God into temptation, not from God, but from the devil. Now, the prayer we're looking at this morning strikes almost all the same notes that we saw in Matthew 4.1, but in a strikingly different way. The prayer we're reading this morning is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us 
from evil. Or as the Christian Standard Bible, the New American Version, the New Living Translation, all translate this verse, deliver us from the evil one. Okay? Matthew 4.1, Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 6.13, don't do that to me, Lord. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So the prayer we're looking at this morning echoes basically the exact same idea we've just seen a few years ago in Matthew 4.1. Just kidding. And it reminds us, or it calls us to pray in what seems like almost an opposite way. So what are we to make of this? Why would Jesus teach us to pray that we would wind up not in difficult situations like he was in with the devil? I was pointing this contrast out to Pastor Ward uh, before the service, and he just looked at me and said, yeah, what are you going to do with that? I said, well, you'll see. (laughs) What's going on here? I believe that Jesus is teaching us to pray like this because the whole Lord's Prayer, especially the last half, is intended to humble us. The whole Lord's Prayer, especially the last half, is intended to get us in touch with our need for humility and God's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. I can't go more than a few days, a few hours. Lord, Pastor Ward preached or prayed in the pastoral prayer thanking God for hundreds of meals this week. I don't know what's going on with you, brother, but I, I, I just had about 21. But anyway, that's... We're, we're to, to pray that God would keep filling us up. It is a call to be reminded that we always need our gas tanks filled up that we're constantly in need of God filling up the tanks of our very dependent bodies. Second prayer request at the end of the Lord's Prayer, and forgive us our sins. It's a reminder you're a sinner. Even after you get saved, you still face and fight sin. You still need to ask God to forgive you as often as you eat meals daily. And then this last prayer request is another prayer request that puts us deeply in touch with our humility or with the humble state we're in. We actually ask God not to make life as hard as it could possibly be. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What's going on here? What's going on here is that Jesus is not endorsing any brand of radical, I can do this, we got this, let's go, kind of Christianity. He is not trying to cultivate 
a group of men and women who are so utterly confident that they can do this and they're just rip-roaring to go and follow him. He's actually trying to cultivate a group of people who are looking at life and going, well, you know what? Is there any way I could get spared from the hardest possible path? Which is an amazing which is an amazing act of humility. We're not to look at the toughest spots and pray, let's do this thing. Rather, we're to look ahead in our lives and say, Lord, if there's any way, could I be delivered from temptation? The Lord Jesus Christ is aiming to cultivate the opposite of the spirit of devotion that was present in the Apostle Peter. Do you remember the Apostle Peter? How do you forget the Apostle Peter? The Apostle Peter, as you know, was a man full of determination and drive to be hardcore. In Matthew 26, Jesus prophesied that his disciples would fall away and abandon him when he went to the cross to die. Jesus gave the word of the Lord about the disciples. You will fall away. What does Peter do? No, 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 no. You've said a lot of good things in your life, Jesus, but that was not one of them. And Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter was basically saying, lead me into temptation, Jesus. I will be radical for you. Then Jesus gave a prophecy specifically about Peter. If, if my general prophecy wasn't enough, Peter, let me now just speak directly to you. And Jesus said to Peter, truly I tell you, this very night, this isn't even going to take 24 hours, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter then sets his strong will to be faithful against Christ's word, again. And he said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter had the attitude many Christian preachers are trying to produce. Peter had the attitude that many of us think we're doing well when we possess. You know what? After Peter talked, he denied Christ. All the disciples denied Christ three times. And Peter's story is a chilling reminder that a devoted spirit can still be a proud spirit. Now listen to me, because I have experienced this so many times in my life, and I wonder if you have too. Sometimes we can be baffled that we keep falling even though we're so committed. And we don't recognize that there's a problem with the kind of commitment we have. There is a self-determination that's proud and God opposes the proud. 
and he gives grace to the humble. Jesus is calling us in this prayer to cultivate a different attitude. He calls us to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Not because if you pray this just the right way, you'll never face temptation again. But because he wants us looking at life going, I can't do this without God. I cannot but fall unless you help me. And frankly, I'm not generally going to be up to the toughest of tests. Now here's the irony. Here is the amazing irony. It's actually people who pray like that who manage to stand when God does lead them into very difficult situations. Douglas O'Donnell tells a story from Fox's Book of Martyrs about two men who lived under the reign of Bloody Mary of England. O'Donnell writes, both of these men were condemned to burn at the stake for their religious convictions. Two men about to be our martyrs. One of them boasted loudly to the other prisoners that he would be a man when he approached his doom, that he was so grounded in the gospel that he could not imagine denying Christ if and when he was given the opportunity. Even on the day of his execution, he spoke of his imminent death in the most pious terms, saying that he was like a bride made ready for the wedding day. Next to this man was a man of another disposition. Although he too was determined not to deny Christ, he admitted that he was terribly fearful of fire. He shared that he had always been in very, he'd always been very sensitive to suffering. And he was in great dread that when that first flame came near his body, he would cry out and recant, thus denying the Lord. So he urged the other man to pray for him. And he spent his time weeping over his weakness and crying out to God for strength. Befuddled by this blubbering, the other man rebuked and chided him for being so cowardly. When they came to the stake, he who had been so bold recanted at first sight of the fire and thus was released, never to return to Christ. The other man, the trembling one, whose prayer at that moment had been, Father, lead me not into temptation, stood firm as a rock, praising and magnifying God as he did a cruel, as he died a cruel but courageous death. Turns out, the secret to dying like Christ is not proudly declaring how Christ-like you are committed to being. No, Christ-likeness flows from hearts that say, I'm not really up to the hardest tests. Would you spare me those? The man who prays like that actually rises to the occasion when the Lord does lead him into terribly tempting situations. Beloved, praying lead me not into temptation actually expresses a weakness and a humility that is actually quite Christ-like. Think of Jesus' prayers on the night before he died. He didn't take smelling salts like a weightlifter and do this thing. Devil's going down. 
On the eve of his death, he was not sniffing smelling salts like a weightlifter. He was asking his friends to pray for him. Jesus was giving out prayer requests for himself the night before he died. And then he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So even Jesus Christ wasn't coming at this, but said, make it as hard as possible. But he was actually asking, if there is an easier way, can we take it? And there wasn't. And that irony abided that the ones who are coming at the hardest situation saying, I probably can't do this, or could we do this in an easier way, often become the ones so reliant on God that they can be Christ-like in the hardest situations. If you're falling apart, something might be going right in your Christian life. If you feel overwhelmed and a deep sense that you can't do it, you're on the edge of getting the power you need to be able to do it. Brothers and sisters, isn't it amazing that Jesus would give us this prayer? He's made us poor in spirit, and then he gives us a prayer that says, yeah, I know you. Mr. Poor in spirit can pray, Lord, lead me not into a place where it would take, I would need to be tough to make it through. And you know what? If you feel that weakness in your own soul, you should be encouraged. He gives grace to the humble. A broken and contrite, he does not despise. Christians who want the hardest situations are headed for failure. But Christians who humbly ask to be spared the hardest situations will find they are surprisingly strong and Christ-like in whatever God gives them to do. Oh, Emmanuel. It's hard not to notice that the flames of hostility towards Christianity are burning hotter and hotter in our day. And it's my desire that if those flames touch you, you'll stand. And it's my hope that if your job is threatened or your family begins to split up because of your devotion to Christ or your classmates mock you because of your faith, I hope you'll stand. But this passage teaches me that you do not cultivate a resilient and faithful people by just saying, let's be strong. You don't cultivate a resilient and faithful people by encouraging people to have the same spirit as Peter. Even if every church abandons you in this crooked and perverse generation, Emmanuel Baptist never will. Recipe for failure. Guaranteed demise. You wouldn't think if we posted something like that online that we were on the edge of a fall. But it would be because you don't have spiritual eyes. Peter was on the edge of the fall. Jesus knows it, and he would know it anytime he sees that attitude in his people today. 
No, when we look at the difficulties in our culture, we should not be praying, bring it on, the blood of the martyrs is seed. We should be praying something that sounds a lot more like your kingdom come, your, which something that sounds a lot more like lead us not into temptation. We should be praying something a lot more that, like what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. Listen to this prayer, it's crazy how much it's shaped by the Spirit of Jesus. Paul calls us to pray, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for those in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Isn't that amazing? There's no let's do this thing spirit. There's, there's no like, let's see what we can show them. No, Lord, if you would, we'd like the government to keep everything peaceful. And we'll use that as an open door for our evangelism and our godly and quiet lives. Now, the irony is, again, people praying that often wind up the ones who don't recant in jail often wind up the ones who stay faithful, even unto death. But the guy who's got the superhero mentality winds up falling on his face every time. So, there's my point about humility. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus took the hardest course. I'll go there if you take me there, Lord. But I'm not asking for it. I'm not trying to see just how hard this life can be made. And that's not about being a wimp. That's actually about being truly humble. This brings me to my second point about God's deliverance. God's deliverance. This prayer teaches us that the people of the church are in constant need of God's deliverance from the devil. Not just unbelievers, but God's people are constantly in need of being delivered from the devil. Deliver us from evil. And if you wanted to look at it, you'd maybe want to go back to Matthew 13, where you'll see twice the same word translated evil is translated evil one. And I think there is this personal note. We're talking about the devil. He's the one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and he's the one who tempts us. So the idea here is, do not lead us into temptation, but when we do face temptation, deliver us from the evil one. Don't let us succumb to the devil's wiles. Don't let us succumb to the devil's temptation. That's the idea here. There's a negative side, lead us not into temptation, and a positive side. And when you do, deliver us. But no, notice that word. The devil is so strong that any victory you ever get over him is a deliverance. You never skate past him. You never outsmart him. He is more powerful than you are. He has been dealing with sinners longer than you've been alive, longer than your nation's been a nation. He is an expert at his craft and there is no good in him. And any time we avoid a sin he would tempt us with, we have been delivered. And God deserves the praise. 
Now, it seems to me that it would be profitable for us to spend the rest of our time thinking about how the devil influences believers and how God delivers believers. I mean, if we're going to be praying, deliver us from the evil one, then we need to know what are we getting delivered from, how does he influence believers, and how does God deliver us? And so I'll give you, I think it winds up being four ways. Give you four ways. The first is we need to understand that the devil influences us with lies and God delivers us with truth. The devil influences us with lies and God delivers us with truth. One of the most distinguishing facts about the devil is that he is a liar. Jesus said in John 8, 44, he is a liar and the father of lies. That is, he is the procreator of lies. He is the one who seeds the world with lies. He is a liar and the father of lies. In the book of Revelation, John talks about the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He has literally filled this world with lies. And there isn't anyone who hasn't come to truth as it's found in Christ who isn't under the sway of these lies. This world we live in has Satan's fingerprints all over it. It's a world of lies. There is no God. God is not personal. Sin is just a social construct. The Bible is a fairy tale. Jesus was just a great preacher, teacher. Sex will satisfy. Money will satisfy. Fame will satisfy. Power will satisfy. If you worry hard enough, you can change your life. If you're good and you work hard enough, you can go to heaven. The devil fills the world with these and a million more lies. And he not only fills the world with lies, he tries to fill the minds of Christians with lies. The reason there's a New Testament is Christians tend to believe lies. The reason there's a New Testament is because we tend to believe lies and you've got to have apostles running around going, cut it out, read this. Okay? Galatians, you're not going to heaven by your good works. Ephesians, Paul tells Timothy. Don't be believing that it's wrong to get married and enjoy food. You know that one, don't you? That's one of the most important false teachings in the Bible. We're told in 1 Timothy there are those who teach that marriage and good food were forbidden, and Paul calls that a teaching of demons. And it's more serious than you think. Because the aim of the devil isn't just to eliminate marriage and food, it's to get you to think that God is severe and miserly. To think, to think that God just is one who dangles good gifts out in the world, but they aren't really for you. That's, what, that's the strategy he used on the very first sin, right? He's holding out on you. You could have the knowledge of good and evil. You won't surely die. And that's what led to sin. I could go on and spend a hundred sermons showing you all the lies tried to get God, Satan tries to get Christians to believe. But my point is this. 
Jesus can deliver you from all these lies if you learn his truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you. That's deliverance language, people. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Which means that as we get inundated with lies, as the joy in our Christian lives gets mucked up and clogged up by lies we begin to believe, those, the channels of grace will open back up as they're washed out by truth. If you're here this morning and you can sense that you're guilty before God, even if the world tells you you shouldn't feel that way, if your conscience won't be quiet, but it reminds you that you have sinned, I have good news for you. You are guilty before God, but the truth is that Jesus Christ came to earth to die on the cross to take away your sins, to pay the death penalty you deserve. If you can sense that your guilt makes you deserve death from the hand of God, the incredible good news that is the lifeblood of Christianity is that Jesus took the death that sinners deserved, and then when he was dead he was and buried, he rose again again because death cannot hold him. He took the penalty sinners deserve and then he busted the tomb open that looms over our head. And if you turn from the lies that you've believed, no matter how many people tell you they're true and you trust his truth, you will be free. Free from condemnation, free from fear of death, and free, from, free to begin a new life empowered by God's Holy Spirit. I plead with you to turn from lies and to believe God's truth. And Emmanuel, I plead with you to make it the goal of your existence to free men and women from lies and to bring them to the knowledge of the truth. That's the whole great commission of Matthew's gospel. It's that we are called to go into all the nations and to proclaim the way, the truth, and the life, and the way to the Father that sets men free. Christians, one of the greatest gifts we can ever give each other is to be truth-tellers into one another's lives. We are prone to believing lies. What we tend to do as Christians is we notice the fruit of believing lies. I'm miserable, my joy is gone, but not the lies themselves. In fact, someone will come along and tell us the lies we're believing that are leading to so little joy, and we just reject that out of hand. But the facts are that when the joy dries up, it's very often because we've begun to believe lies. And Ephesians tells us that this church is to be a place, a community, where we are speaking the truth in love and we grow up into, every, into him who is the head, into Christ. Beloved, do you have a strategy on Sunday mornings? Like, do you come here actually intending to do anything? Here are hundreds of Christians gathered, each of them with lives just as hard or harder than your own, each of them just as prone to believing lies as you are. And when we come together, there ought to be a sense in which we're intending to maybe go early or stay late or have each other over after the service so that we can listen to one another. One of the greatest gifts long-term members of Emmanuel can give to one another 
is long-term relationships where it's like, I know you. I know what kind of things you tend to believe. I know what you tend to gravitate to you. And I'm growing year by year in my skill in speaking the truth to you in love. Talked to a lot of long-term members recently who've been talking about just the importance and the value they're seeing and just trying to have old friends over, reacquainting themselves with them. And those times are good just in and of themselves, for food, for fellowship. But they can often open up conversations where we minister the truth to one another and literally are used by God in spiritual warfare to set one another free. That kind of ministry doesn't make it into the bulletin. It may not even bear fruit after one night. But listening carefully to friends and those in fellowship and hearing comprehensively how they're doing and what's going on in their lives actually makes us people who can then be answers to this prayer. Not just the people praying, Lord, deliver us from evil, but then speaking the truth into other people's lives that does deliver them from evil. One of the greatest joys of my whole life as a pastor is winding up around a dinner table or or on a couch, talking to someone, hearing what they're going through, and then listening carefully enough to say, oh man, if you would just see this a little clearer from the scriptures, your heart would be set on fire again by joy. And I'll tell you this, the sufferings you're going through now and the scriptures that you're feeding on as you go through those sufferings, God is arming you so you've got something true to say. So you've got a comfort to bring. So that you have a deliverance that you can help someone with as you bring the truth that sets people free. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, that speaking the truth to one another is an act of spiritual warfare. And that God intends for us to be the agents that help to bring others to freedom in Christ. Well, we're thinking about how the, God, how the devil influences us, and we're thinking about how God delivers us. And we've seen that he influences us by lies, and he also sets, God sets us free by truth. Another way we are influenced by the devil is by the devil's control over our circumstances. Yes, I'm a Calvinist, and I just said that. So let me say it again. Another way we are influenced by the devil is by the devil's control over our circumstances. That ought to make us tremble. The one who hates our soul would have any measure of control over our circumstances. Now, I know we're a people who emphasize the sovereignty of God in all things. That's good and right. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. He alone is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and not one molecule, as R.C. Sproul used to say, of this creation is outside of his control. That's true. But under God's control, he often gives a shocking amount of control over our circumstances to the devil. It's not an accident the devil is called the God of this world in the scriptures, the God inspired. 
When the devil controls our circumstances, he often makes things very, very trying and tempting. The devil doesn't shape circumstances for your fruitfulness and joy. The devil shapes circumstances so you will doubt the goodness of God, be tempted with bitterness, and tempted to a million sinful things. You'll remember the devil filled a wilderness with temptation for Jesus, and he often fills difficult situations with temptations for us. We see the devil's control over circumstances in several places in the Bible. The most clear example is in the life of Job. In the book of Job, the devil comes before God and basically challenges God and tells him that this man Job only worships God because God has made him healthy and wealthy. God, in response, allows the devil to massively alter Job's circumstances. In Job 1, we hear that Satan challenges God. Does God, I'm quoting from Job 1.9, does, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So you've made him wealthy, God. Of course he loves you. Nothing amazing about Job. But then the devil says, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Now see, it's God is in ultimate control, but he is giving real control to the devil. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And of course, if you go and read the rest of the chapter, all of Job's wealth is wiped out. All of, God's all of Job's children are killed. Now, what did Satan do with all that power? First, he knocked out the children and the wealth, but then he came to God again, because guess what? Job kept worshiping God. And in chapter 2, verse 7, we read this. Satan says to God, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. You've still left his health intact. Touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. He gave the devil control over Job's health. And Job wound up scratching sores with clay pots. Now, we could say a lot about this, but all we're trying to show right now is that God gives Satan a degree of control over our circumstances, and Satan's aim in making us miserable is to tempt us to be unfaithful and to sin. Let me give you a few more examples, because I know this is a different teaching. We see the devil's power to shape circumstances in the life of a woman called a daughter of Abraham in Luke 13. We are told this woman had a disabling spirit for 18 years. It wasn't just a disabling disease, it was a disabling spirit. Jesus also calls her one, quote, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Satan bound for 18 years. So her physical circumstances were the devil's binding, lasting almost two decades. Is God in ultimate control? Of course, that's why Jesus can release her. But Satan has a real and a very practical and a very experienced 
and a felt control. We see this control over circumstances again in the life of Peter. We often think of the Peter's denial of the Lord, and we think about how that was on Peter, and it was. We are never released from our responsibility. No matter how difficult the circumstances Satan is allowed to put us in. But come at the fall of Peter from a different angle, if you will. Remember that in Luke 22, 31 through 32, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, that's Peter's alternate name, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, sounds just like the Job language, has demanded to have you that he might sift you, shake you up like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We have to remember that when that teenage girl said to Peter, do you know Jesus? She was a tool of the devil. She was the devil's set circumstances to shake up Peter's faith. So how does God deliver us from the devil in these circumstances? How does God deliver us? Deliver us from evil one. Deliver us from evil one. How does he do that? I'll give you three ways, and then he'll, I'll sit down. First, sometimes he just takes us out of the bad circumstances. Sometimes he's got you in pinching, poking, brutal, tempting circumstances, and he just takes you out. He just removes you from the difficulty. You see that in Job. What happened to Job? He didn't suffer forever. Job 42, verses 10 through 12. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job. What Satan had made anguishing and wicked and horrible, the Lord restored. And I'd love to read it all to you. But the end of it is, it says, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. You may be in difficult circumstances and think, this is clearly of the devil. You ought to pray that you'd be delivered. And one of the ways God delivers you is he just takes you into pleasant passages. Pastors. Sometimes sick people get healthy. Some people are under a continual attack from the devil in a particular way, have it released. I can speak to one of those in my life. I was a drug addict for many years when I got saved. That addiction or that tendency to sin was still very live. And I fell one time after I got saved. And God led me to pray and pray and pray and pray. I've never even desired the stuff again. Now, unfortunately, I've desired a lot of other sins. I've had to fight, but God is able to change circumstances, change where we're at. And it's no doubt in the sovereignty of God to appeal to him for it, ask him to change circumstances of health or difficulty at work or in family. God is over the control that Satan has been given. Sometimes we rush in too quickly to say, just submit to the sovereignty of God. Under the sovereignty of God, there may be a deep work of the devil, which we need to be praying against. Second, let's be, what's the other way God delivers us when Satan's got us in difficult circumstances? Well, sometimes he leaves you there and empowers you to be faithful. Sometimes he leaves you there and gives you power to be faithful. Jesus was left in the wilderness 40 days. 
Or let's think maybe about a, a, an example many of us will know. The Apostle Paul describes himself as someone who had a minister of Satan to torment him. That's rough. We don't know exactly what it is, but I know it's bad, okay? Whatever that was, it was bad. Paul tells us, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. I mean, God's showering Bible down on Paul, taking him up to the third heavens, and, and you know, Paul's human. And you start dealing with mere mortals who haven't been to the third heavens, you start to get a little full of yourself, and so God's like, we're gonna have to deal with that. And, and Paul tells us, because of that situation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Exactly what it was, we don't know. Could have been his persecutions, could have been a particular temptation, could have been a physical ailment, we don't know. Lots of ink has been spilled trying to figure it out. Let's just leave it for this morning as, if you've got Satan harassing you from God, that's rough. And I'm laughing about it now, but there's some of you who are having a real hard time because of that very kind of harassing. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Now notice that. Why did he do that? He knew God could change it. It's back to the first assumption. He knew God could take this away. And it was okay to pray. He didn't just go, that's what God gave me for my life. That's just the way it's going to be forever. No, he wanted it gone. Lord, lead me not in the temptation. I'd like to be delivered from this. But each time God said no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We should pray to be delivered from difficult Satan-set circumstances. But if God keeps answering that prayer, it's not, keeps denying that prayer request, it's not because he's abandoned you. It's because he wants to empower you with grace that's sufficient for you in great difficulty. And then that brings me to my last point. What if you fall? What if Satan set a trap for you, a difficult family situation, different health situation, and you get bitter, you get angry, your marriage is brutal, you commit adultery, circumstances are bad, you deny the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens then? Is there any way you can pray, deliver me from the evil one when you've fallen to the temptations of the evil one? Go back to what Jesus said to Peter. Remember what he said? He said, Satan has demanded to sift you, but I have prayed that your faith would not fail, and after you're restored, strengthen your brothers. I love it. You fall flat on your face in sin, and the devil that tempted you will now become the devil that accuses you, the devil that allured you, promising you satisfaction, will now come down with the full weight of hell's condemnation, and he will allure you into losing all hope, to feeling all condemnation. He will want you to kill yourself like Judas when you deny the Lord. But here's the thing, if Jesus is praying for you, you'll come on back. Isn't it amazing? That when we fall, there are some who fall and say, I can't deal with this shame, and they go off into despair, abandoning the Lord, or in the case of Judas, actual suicide. 
But then there's others who, like Peter, even though they fail him, hear that he rose from the dead and run to the empty tomb to see him and then find him ready to say, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. I just love that Jesus has a way to deliver us from the devil even when we've failed and fallen into the temptations of the devil. Amen? Oh, this Lord's Prayer is wonderful, isn't it? It's a prayer for weak Christians. It's a prayer for Christians like us. And this last request reminds us we don't have to posture ourselves as strong or radical or uber committed or hardcore before God. He would be pleased to hear you say, Lord, if I could not take the hardest path, that'd be nice. And the irony is if you pray like that, you'll become strengthened to be the kind of person he could actually use on a harder path. And then to pray for his deliverance. Deliverance from the lies of the devil, deliverance from the circumstances where he would press you to sin, deliverance by him changing your circumstances, deliverance that comes by him empowering you in the midst of difficult circumstances, and deliverance that assures you of forgiveness and restoration even if you fall flat on your face in his most tempting wildernesses. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and glorify you because you are good and so kind to weak sheep like us. We pray you would lead us not into temptation, but you would deliver us from the evil one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.